This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Alex Patterson. From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter 2. President Barbicane's Communication. On the 5th of October, at 8 p.m., a dense crowd pressed toward the saloons of the gun club at number 21 Union Square. All the members of the association resident in Baltimore attended the invitation of their president. As regards the corresponding members, notices were delivered by hundreds throughout the streets of the city, and, large as was the great hall, it was quite inadequate to accommodate the crowd of savants. They overflowed into the adjoining rooms, down the narrow passages, and into the outer courtyards. There they ran against the vulgar herd, who pressed up to the doors, each struggling to reach the front ranks, all eager to learn the nature of the important communication of President Barbicane, all pushing, squeezing, crushing with that perfect freedom of action which is so peculiar to the masses when educated in ideas of self-government. On that evening, a stranger, who might have chanced to be in Baltimore, could not have gained admission for love or money into the Great Hall. That was reserved exclusively for resident or corresponding members. No one else could possibly have obtained a place, and the city magnates, municipal councillors, and select men were compelled to mingle with the mere townspeople in order to catch stray bits of news from the interior. Nevertheless, the vast hall presented a curious spectacle. Its immense area was singularly adapted to the purpose. Lofty pillars formed of cannon, superimposed upon huge mortars as a base, supported the fine ironwork of the arches, a perfect piece of cast-iron lacework. Trophies of blunderbusses, matchlocks, arquebuses, carabines, and all kinds of firearms, ancient and modern, were picturesquely interlaced against the walls. The gas lit up in full glare myriads of revolvers grouped in the form of lusters, while groups of pistols and candelabra formed of muskets bound together, completed this magnificent display of brilliance. Models of cannon, bronze castings, sight covered with dents, plates battered by the shots of the gun club, assortments of ramers and sponges, chaplets of shells, wreaths of projectiles, garlands of howitzers. In short, all the apparatus of the artillerist enchanted the eye by this wonderful arrangement and induced a kind of belief that their real purpose was ornamental rather than deadly. At the further end of the saloon, the president, assisted by four secretaries, occupied a large platform. His chair, supported by a carved gun carriage, was modeled upon the ponderous proportions of a 32-inch mortar. It was pointed at an angle of 90 degrees and suspended upon truncans, so that the president could balance himself upon it as upon a rocking chair, a very agreeable fact in the very hot weather. Upon the table, a huge iron plate, supported upon six carondes, stood an inkstand of exquisite elegance, made of a beautifully chased Spanish piece, and a sonnet, which, when required, would give forth a report equal to that of a revolver. During violent debates, this novel kind of bell scarcely sufficed to drown out the clamor of these excitable artillerists. In front of the table benches, arranged in zigzag form, like the circumventilations of a retrenchment, formed a succession of bastions and curtains, set apart for the use of the members of the club. On this especial evening, one might say, all the world was on the ramparts. The president was sufficiently well known, however, for all to be assured that he would not put his colleagues to discomfort without some very strong motive. 
Impey Barbicane was a man of forty years of age, calm, cold, austere, of a singularly serious and self-contained demeanor, punctual as a chronometer, of imperturbable temper, an immovable character, by no means chivalrous, yet adventurous withal, and always bringing practical ideas to bear upon the very rushest enterprises, an essentially New Englander, a northern colonist, a descendant of the anti-Stuart roundheads, and the implacable enemy of the gentlemen of the South, those ancient cavaliers of the mother country. In words, he was a Yankee to the backbone. Barbicane had made a large fortune as a timber merchant. Being nominated director of artillery during the war, he provided himself fertile in invention. Bold in his conceptions, he contributed powerfully to the progress of that arm and gave an immense impetus to experimental researches. He was personage of the middle height, having, by a rare exception to the gun club, all his limbs complete. His strongly marked features seem drawn by square and rule, and, if it be true, that, in order to judge a man's character, one must look at his profile. Barbicane, so examined, exhibited the most certain indications of energy, audacity, and sang-froid. At this moment, he was sitting in his armchair, silent, absorbed, lost in reflection, sheltered up under his high-crowned hat, a kind of black cylinder which always seemed firmly screwed upon the head of an American. Just when the deep-toned clock in the great hall struck eight, Barbicane, as if he had been set in motion by a spring, raised himself up. A profound silence ensued, and the speaker, in a somewhat emphatic tone of voice, commenced as follows. My brave colleagues, too long already a paralyzing peace has plunged the members of the gun club into deplorable inactivity. After a period of years full of incidents, we have been compelled to abandon our labors and to stop short on the road of progress. I do not hesitate to state, baldly, that any war which would recall us to arms would be welcome. Tremendous applause. But war, gentlemen, is impossible under existing circumstances, and, however we may desire it, many years may elapse before our cannon shall again thunder in the field of battle. We must make up our minds, then, to seek in another train of ideas some field for the activity which we will all pine for. The meeting felt that the President was now approaching the critical point, and redoubled their attention accordingly. For some months past, my brave colleagues, continued Barbicane, I have been asking myself whether, while confining ourselves to our own particular objects, we could not enter upon some grand experiment worthy of the nineteenth century, and whether the progress of artillery science would not enable us to carry it out to a successful issue. I have been considering work, calculating, and the result of my studies is the conviction that we are safe to succeed in an enterprise which to any other country would appear wholly impracticable. This project, the result of long elaboration, is the object of my present communication. It is worthy of yourselves, worthy to the antecedents of the gun club, and it cannot fail to make some noise in the world. A thrill of excitement ran through the meeting. Barbicane, having by a rapid movement firmly fixed his hat upon his head, calmly continued this harangue. There is no one among you, my brave colleagues, who has not seen the moon, or, at least, heard speak of it. Don't be surprised if I am about to discourse to you regarding the Queen of the Night. It is perhaps reserved for us to become the Columbuses of this unknown world. Only enter into my plans, and second me with all your power, and I will lead you to its conquest, and its name shall be added upon those of the thirty-six states which compose this great union.
Three cheers for the moon, roared the gun club with one voice. The moon, gentlemen, has been carefully studied, continued Barbicane. Her mass, density, and weight, her constitution, motions, distance, as well as her place in the solar system, all have been exactly determined. Selenographic charts have been constructed with a perfection which equals, if it does not even surpass, that of our terrestrial maps. Photography has given us proofs of the incomparable beauty of our satellite. All is known regarding the moon, which mathematical science, astronomy, geology, and optics can learn about her. But up to the present moment, no direct communication has been established with her. A violent movement of interest and surprise here greeted this remark of the speaker. Permit me, he continued, to recount to you briefly how certain ardent spirits, starting on imaginary journeys, have penetrated the secrets of our satellite. In the seventeenth century, a certain David Fabricus boasted of having seen with his own eyes the inhabitants of the moon. In 1649, a Frenchman, one Jean Balloon, published a journey performed from the earth to the moon by Domingo Gonzalez, a Spanish adventurer. At the same period, Cyrano de Bergiac published that celebrated Journeys to the Moon, which met with such success in France. Somewhat later, another Frenchman named Fontelet wrote The Plurality of Worlds, a Fer de Roi of its time. About 1835, a small treatise translated from the New York American related how Sir John Herschel, having been dispatched to the Cape of Good Hope for the purpose of making there some astronomical calculations, had, by means of a telescope, wrought to perfection by means of internal lighting, reduced the apparent distance of the moon to eighty yards. He then distinctly perceived caverns, frequented by hippopotami, green mountains bordered by golden lacework, sheep with horns of ivory, a white species of deer, and inhabitants with membranous wings like bats. This brochure, the work of an American named Locke, had a great sale. But to bring this rapid sketch to a close, I will only add that a captain, Hans Pfahl of Rotterdam, launched himself in a balloon filled with a gas extracted from nitrogen, 37 times lighter than hydrogen, reaching the moon after a passage of 19 hours. This journey, like all previous ones, was purely imaginary. Still, it was the work of a popular American author. I mean, Edgar Poe. Cheers for Edgar Poe, roared the assemblage, electrified by their president's words. I have now enumerated, said Barbicane, the experiments which I call purely paper ones, and wholly insufficient to establish serious relations with the Queen of the Night. Nevertheless, I am bound to add that some practical geniuses have attempted to establish actual communication with her. Thus, a few days ago, a German geometrician proposed to send a scientific expedition to the steppes of Siberia. There, on those vast plains, they were to describe enormous geometric figures, drawn in characters of reflecting luminosity, among which was the proposition regarding the square of the hypotenuse, commonly called the ass's bridge by the French. Every intelligent being, said the geometrician, must understand the scientific meaning of that figure. The Selenites, do they exist, will respond by a similar figure, and, a communication being thus once established, it will be easy to form an alphabet which will enable us to converse with the inhabitants of the moon. So spoke the German geometrician, but his project was never put into practice, and so, up to the present day, there is no bond in existence between the Earth and her satellite. It is reserved for the practical genius of Americans to establish a communication with the sidereal world. The means of arriving thither are simple, 
easy, certain, indefallible, and that is the purpose of my present proposal. A storm of acclamations greeted these words. There was not a single person in the whole audience who was not overcome, carried away, lifted out of himself by the speaker's words. Long-continued applause resounded from all sides. As soon as the excitement had partially subsided, Barbicane resumed his speech in a somewhat graver voice. You know, said he, what progress artillery science has made during these last few years, and what a degree of perfection firearms of every kind have reached. Moreover, you are well aware that, in general terms, the resisting power of cannon and the expansive forces of gunpowder are practically unlimited. Well, starting from this principle, I asked myself whether, supposing sufficient apparatus could be obtained constructed upon the conditions of ascertained resistance, it might not be possible to project a shot up to the moon. At these words, a murmur of amazement escaped from a thousand panting chests, then succeeded a moment of perfect silence, resembling that profound stillness which precedes the bursting of a thunderstorm. In point of fact, a thunderstorm did peal forth, but it was the thunder of applause, or cries, and of uproar which made the very hull tremble. The president attempted to speak, but could not. It was fully ten minutes before he could make himself heard. Suffer me to finish, he calmly continued. I have looked at the question in all its bearings. I have resolutely attacked it, and by incontrovertible calculations, I find that a projectile endowed with an initial velocity of 12,000 yards per second and aimed at the moon must necessarily reach it. I have the honor, my brave colleagues, to propose a trial of this little experiment. End of chapter 2